0: Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating
1: law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm.
2: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I'm Mary Simon, and I'm joined today by Liz Lenovey, Megan Crow, and Elizabeth McNulty. And today we are taking a deep dive into part two on focus groups, This episode is really focused on what are some big takeaways that we've learned from our focus groups and common misconceptions by jurors, particularly in terms of what is the jury's job and what happens in a civil case when there is a jury verdict and what does that mean for the parties involved in litigation? A large part of this discussion I wanted to have for attorneys who either haven't focused a lot of their cases or have, and maybe they have understood these common misconceptions and what we can do as attorneys to kind of speak to those. You know, I guess we could either talk about them in our trials at closing argument or maybe get out ahead of some of these misconceptions in jury selection, although obviously there are limitations to what we can and can't say during those times of trial. But I think these are important enough to at least talk about. So one of the most concerning issues that I have seen in a focus group is that one individual was kind of leading this group down a path that his understanding of what happens in a case is that a jury either has to find all of the money that the plaintiff's lawyer is asking for, that amount of money, or nothing. So the plaintiff's attorney in this focus group, so our office would be asking for, you know, a specific amount of money, maybe in a life care plan or in pain and suffering damages, which are non-economic damages, to be a certain amount. And the jurors in this focus group, so jurors with the air quotes, were essentially thinking, well, do we give that amount of money or should the plaintiff lose? And I was kind of getting thrown when I was listening to them, you know, deliberate, because I kept thinking, man, I guess it wasn't made clear to them that they didn't need to find, you know, kind of all or nothing, like all the money the plaintiff's lawyer was asking for or nothing. But it's not the first time that I've heard that. I mean, I've heard it once in a focus group and also by a family member thinking, Oh, isn't that how this works when you see on TV or something that a plaintiff's lawyer, it'll say, you know, plaintiff is demanding X amount of money and it's usually in the millions of dollars. And this individual also thought that the jury needed to decide for that amount of money or nothing. You know, I think we make it fairly clear that it's this is what we're suggesting but you can decide what amount you think is fair.
1: Is that kind of how you all approach this? Oh, yeah. Whenever I'm giving a closing argument, I think what we typically do is we'll go up there and we'll walk through the jury instructions with the jury. And part of that is because we want to make sure that they do have an understanding of pretty complicated legal topics. I think that's something that many trial lawyers, the trap that we fall into is that we forget when we learn something and we forget our knowledge base. And the fact that this is such a unique area of education and expertise to have that non-attorneys are not going to have this knowledge. I mean, even sometimes talking to my husband, who has a pretty good understanding of my job because I talk about it at home, he'll still ask me questions where I'm like, that's a silly question. And then I have to step back and say, no, it's not a silly question. That's actually a very valid question for someone who doesn't do this day in and day out to ask. And so I think about whenever I have a case, how would I explain it? Frankly, how would I explain it to my mom? And I use my mom as an example because she's not an attorney. She doesn't have any experience with lawyers. I might be the only lawyer that she knows. And so I use it. How would I explain this to my mom so that she could follow me in a conversation? And so when we're doing our closing and we get up there with our jury instructions, when we get to the verdict form, I think the typical action is you'll go in there and if you use an elbow, if you're old school, you know, projector, you put the verdict form up there and you'll you'll write your numbers in there. But you have to make it very clear to the jury that this is my suggestion. This is what I'm telling you I think this case is worth. But what you need to do is take all of this information and go back into that deliberation room and fight amongst yourselves for what you think this number should be. And that sounds like I'm being repetitive, but to your point, Mary, jurors don't know. They don't know how the system works. And so it is our job to educate them on this. And if you've got a situation where you have 12 jurors Who have listened to all of the evidence, have listened to your closing argument, and then they go back into that deliberation room and say, well, we got to do all or nothing and, and there's no in between and there's no room for deliberation. Frankly, it sounds like you didn't do a very good job in your closing making that clear to them.
0: I recently had a little bit of insight into this issue, kind of a little bit different, but along the same lines, I was talking with my dad, actually, who reads some publication that circulated around here that reports on claims that have been filed and jury verdicts and, you know, sort of business happenings and judicial happenings. And he asked me, why do all of these say that the cases are worth $25,000? And he was just like, why is every case like worth $25,000 or something? And I thought about it and I was like, When we file a petition, we usually plead that we are asking for an amount in excess of $25,000 to, you know, get out of associate circuit court or to um, plead an amount greater than $75,000 for diversity jurisdiction purposes or, or something like that. So there are these sort of rote numbers that I really don't even think about that we always include in the petition. And some lay people who are not familiar with the way our system works will look at that and be like, oh, like this claim, just because you're asking this, must have this sort of dollar stamp on It and I hadn't thought about that before, but when I explained it, he's like, Oh, I didn't understand how that worked before. So I think sometimes, to Liz's point, we don't know when we learn stuff, and it's a very good reminder to explain things in very basic terms to a jury without you know infantilizing them. And that's the fine line, right? There's two things that we can't do,
2: we can't possibly address. Every single potential assumption or misconception that the members of a jury may have about how the legal system operates. Right. And we can't insult them. You never want to insult the jury, but you have to give as much information as you possibly can to let them do their job. Part of this that makes it so difficult, they get a set of jury instructions that has a ton of legal language in them. Sometimes I read them multiple times over and over to the point where I'm even doubting myself as to the findings that I'm putting on my verdict director, or what I initially wanted them to say or attach meaning to. So jurors can only go off of what their understanding is from what the lawyers have told them in the trial. And one of the other you know, misconceptions that I've heard This either came up in a focus group a couple years ago, or it was from a juror after a case went to verdict. One of the jurors thought that they weren't qualified to be deciding the issues that they were being asked to decide. It was a med mal case, and they just thought that the medicine, as they understood it, could not possibly be at the level of competency that someone needed to have in order to decide what was or wasn't negligent. I think it was in a focus group now that I think of it. And I remember being so scared about that because I just was thinking, you know, if that's what they're thinking in a focus group, if we've got a jury who thinks that, I don't know how they could ever possibly come down on either side, right? Or be able to talk to other jurors who don't have that question for themselves and they do think they're qualified. Like, I don't know how that would play out. That's what juries are for right? It's to decide these issues. They are the only people equipped with the knowledge and skills and you know, duty to decide who's going to win in any given case. So beyond saying in close or even in jury selection, we have worked for the last years to get to this exact moment where it gets to get turned over to you to decide. I'm at a loss of how else you'd describe to somebody who thinks, oh, my gosh, we've just sat here for a week or two weeks or however long the trial was and heard all of this stuff. And I still don't even know how this surgery is supposed to go, you know, and maybe that's by fault of the parties, right, of the attorneys to put them in that situation. But I don't beyond telling them, yes, you can this is what your job is today. I don't know how you really fix that problem, especially if you hear it in a focus group.
3: Well, I think that the one thing that you're missing in the focus group that you do have in a real trial is a judge who's telling you and giving the jury the power, like, you're here today, this week, blah, blah, to make these decisions. And, like, I think then the jurors know, like, okay, well, we have to decide this one way or the other. But I do think maybe in that case... Maybe the experts didn't do a great job of explaining how the medicine works. But I mean, I get the concern of just like a regular person who walked into a courtroom today and, you know, is expected to decide these big things. I would think in criminal trials, it's probably even more concerning. And like I would probably have an issue. Like, especially like, I don't know, death penalty cases where you're expected to have to decide this person's fate one way or the other. I don't know that I would feel qualified to do that, regardless of whether the judge told me I could or not. So I mean, I get the concern. I just don't know. There's a whole lot we as lawyers can do to kind of get over that fear, except like get rid of those people during jury selection.
2: Right. Or, you know, have faith that that's not going to be how all of them think. Right. Sure. So majority will be able to let that person know we can.
0: I've also seen in closing sort of these arguments that we put forth empowering the jury. Like we are trusting you. We're putting our trust in you to make these decisions and gently reminding them that it's okay for you to decide these issues.
1: Megan, I was about to say the same thing. And I think the line or the phrase that I've used that has had the most impact on jurors who may be unsure about their qualifications to decide these really complicated topics sometimes is we remind them the jury system works because it is your ability to participate in your government at the ground level. And that is because the way that the jury system operates is that we're relying on you as the community to come here and decide what is and is not acceptable behavior in the community. You are the voice of this city, this county, wherever you're at, you get to speak on behalf of your neighbors about what is acceptable. What are we willing to tolerate here? I'm not saying that that is necessarily going to you know, calm the fears or worry or anxiety of every juror. But I do think that to your point, Megan, like you said, empowering people and reminding them that the jury system works because we have to rely on our fellow community members and you are qualified ultimately to speak on the place that you live. What do you guys think about this
2: one? You know how when a jury is back deliberating, they sometimes ask questions. The foreperson will write a question out, hand it to the judge. The judge will bring the attorneys in if they're not in the courtroom or, you know, read the question to the parties and see how they want to proceed. And I've had instances before where a jury might want some of the evidence From the case, they may ask for a deposition. They might ask for a demonstrative that was put before them. They might ask for testimony from the trial, you know, that obviously we don't have the trial transcripts to hand back. I've also had jurors ask for medical literature or, you know, if it's a product case, the product or some model of it or something. Sometimes the parties and the court don't send back everything that the jury is asking for, either because both sides agree that wouldn't be helpful to continue them in deliberations or it's not something that. They are either allowed to have back there with them. There's so many reasons. And in my experience, it seems that there's a general instruction that the court can give, which is some iteration of please deliberate based on the evidence as you best remember it. But what do you all think of that? I mean, do you think that there should be more information given to the jury as
1: to why they can't get that information? I guess I've never put much thought into is the jury now going to be reading into the fact that they're not getting this? I frankly always just looked at it as well, the judge said no. Sort of like, you know, when you would ask your mom for something and your mom said no. And then you say, why? And she said, because I said so. That's the same thing. The judge said no. I don't think that the jury necessarily, and I could be wrong. I think that's an important topic of today. <laughs> right. We clearly don't know what jurors are thinking. Right? I guess I've never really put much thought into it other than, you know, the court is giving you this instruction. It's not coming from the plaintiff's lawyer. It's not coming from the defendant's lawyer. It's coming from the judge. And the judge said no because he or she said so. And I'm thinking about it in terms of, you
2: know, we're kind of overlapping with whether it's in a focus group or a jury, but it's essentially we're getting at the same point, right? Because they are jurors, whether they're an air quote jurors or actual jurors in our trials. But I've always thought about that. It's like, well, if we're asked to decide the case and we ask for something to help us do that and we're told we don't get it. I think okay. it's very <laughs>
0: frustrating for jurors sometimes. The first thing that came to my mind, frankly, when we started talking about this topic was insurance. I've never had a trial where the jury didn't come back with a question asking about possible insurance that was applicable. And obviously we as attorneys and judges, know that the jury's not allowed to know that information. I had a trial not too long ago where the first question was, what are the insurance policies applicable? And the judge gave the typical instruction of, you must decide this case based on the facts as you remember it and the law given to you by the court or something like that. And they came back a second time like, no, really, what's the insurance? And it happened like two or three times where they were like, Please just tell us. And I could like feel their frustration of like getting the same answer back. And I so badly wanted to be like, we can't give this to you because you're not allowed to use that in like considering your verdict. But like it should be obvious that when they're not getting that answer, that is. But I so badly wanted to like write out more of a response of why they can't have that, because I think if I were in that position and I were to get that response, I'd be like, this is really unhelpful. I know we can't always do it, but I think it would be helpful to have an explanation of why you can't, because it may help to focus the jury's attention elsewhere. But without that sort of nudge of like, hey, you have to focus your attention elsewhere, I think sometimes that's where we get into the Wild West. Well, I think
3: at least as far
0: as instructions go,
3: then like there's huge debates every time a question is asked between the parties of if you're not giving just that blanket kind of like You know, don't worry about it. Then it's like, well, I want it to say this and I want it to say that because like especially like when juries are deliberating, it's so tense and like you would be fighting over every word that was in the instruction. So I think it's just kind of best to be like the standard instruction.
1: I think it's also important in closing because there is the insurance instruction in Missouri, right, that says you can't think about this. And it's just an example of what we were talking about earlier of it's your job to educate these people on a really complicated system that they don't have familiarity with. And so, you know, what we do in our closing is we'll go through the instructions. And when we get to the insurance instruction that says you cannot consider insurance coverage or not or limits or anything like that, I don't know exactly how it's phrased off the top of my head, but it's basically telling the jury you can't talk about this and you can't think about this. Now, of course, we're trying to control how they think, but what we do say is, look, This is the instruction. This is the law in the state of Missouri. This is the law that is intended to guide you in your deliberations. And so when one of your fellow jurors starts talking about insurance, you can pull out this instruction and say, No, 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 the judge gave us the law, and the law says we can't think about it. Now, obviously, that doesn't stop the jury from thinking about it. But maybe in a situation like you were talking about, Megan, that could have been an opportunity for someone else to say, Hey, we can't send that question out there because we're not even supposed to be talking talking about it. So you know we've been talking about what do you learn in in focus groups or sometimes what do you learn from jurors themselves and I think the theme of this episode has been we really can't predict where jurors minds are going and in preparing to record this episode I was actually just thumbing through a couple of different magazines to try to find you know maybe some different topics some inspiration on topics and I actually came across one that talked about focus groups and I thought oh, okay well this will be good to read so this is not my story and I apologize I can't remember which publication it was, and I can't remember the author's name. I'm sorry. So I'll give a, a really brief summary of the facts because I think it highlights just what it means to be a trial lawyer and how sometimes we get stuck in our own way of thinking. But the facts of this particular case that was being focus grouped as the plaintiff's attorney described it, her client had been in a grocery store, had approached the refrigerated food section. There was some water that she did not see, and she slipped and fell. Part of her explanation for why she didn't see the water was because the tiling around the refrigerated section of the grocery store, it had faded or something about it had changed over time. It just wasn't as clean looking as the rest of the store. And maybe it was because of the refrigeration. Not quite sure. But there was a difference in the color of the tiling. After she fell, she then went up to the clerk to explain that she had fallen and hurt herself because there was water that shouldn't have been there on the ground. And per company policy, she was supposed to get an incident report to fill out. Instead, what the clerk did was say, oh, okay," handed her a piece of paper and said, well, write down your name and number. Someone from corporate will call you instead of doing the company policy of having her fill out the incident report. So this case was focus grouped. And a common argument was, well, she fell because she wasn't paying attention, right? And I would never fall because I pay attention. So, you know, that's something you have to think about. How do you get past that? So the attorney was kind of really, really playing up. Well, there's a difference in the tiling. The tiling had a different color. There was something going on with it. It made it hard to see. This wasn't so much her fault as it was, you know, the store for having the water on the floor and so on and so forth. One juror took the difference in the tiling and proceeded to make a big argument about how, well, the difference in the tiling may have happened because there was something wrong with the refrigerator. And that means they're not refrigerating the food correctly. So if I bought that food there, then is it possible that that food is poisoned and they're gonna poison me and my family? Oh God. All over the place, but eventually getting back to the point of, well, the grocery store <laughs> it's clearly is something wrong with the tiling. <laughs> So she tells this whole big story. And then another juror made a big deal about the fact that after the negligence had already occurred, when she went up to the front store clerk, who I'm sure was, you know, some poor minimum wage employee who's not getting paid enough to really, you know, handle all this, and know all of the specific company policies. But this one juror was just enraged. That instead of getting the incident report to fill out as the company policy stated, she was just handed a piece of paper, write down your name and number. And he says, you know... I don't think she was treated right, and I wouldn't like it if someone treated me like that. Egregious behavior. Egregious, yes. But I think the takeaway from both of those stories, the one woman who had the incredible winding path of, you're going to poison me and my family, and we're all going to wind up in the hospital, and then this other man who said, that would really hurt my feelings if you handed me a piece of paper to write my name and number down after I've fallen and hurt myself. The important thing there is that jurors will always try to put themselves in the situation of the plaintiff. Whether it's because I wouldn't do that, I wouldn't fall because I pay attention and I'm careful and I'm smart and I wouldn't be so dumb as to fall, even though we all know an injury can happen to anyone under any circumstances. But also on the other side of the people who said, well, that doesn't make me feel good or that makes me feel unsafe. That makes me feel like my family is unsafe. And so I think that what we need to remember as attorneys is every fact we have, we need to try to spin it as it's a safety issue. This is for plaintiffs, right? It's a safety issue. This is something that is inherently putting the community, putting you, everyone at risk. And that is unacceptable. And that's why you should rule in our favor. And and on the flip side, defense theories, they're going to run with the, well, this only happened because the plaintiff wasn't paying attention because the plaintiff was negligent. And obviously that wouldn't happen to you, jury, because you all are 12 well, very smart people, very astute, observational people. And so you would never have a fall like this or you would never suffer an injury like this. And so, obviously, we're not allowed in trial to say, imagine if this happened to you, right? That's the golden rule. We're not allowed to violate that. But I think it's important to remember that every fact we put forward needs to go to this argument of imagine if this did happen to you. We can't say the words. We can't say that phrase. But we need to make sure that everything eventually at least plants the seed into the juror's mind so that they then come to that conclusion, whether it's to rule in your favoring and give your client a big verdict. How do you spin those facts? And then how does that relate into a verdict?
2: I also think, Liz, you better connect the dots, because if you don't, the jury's going to do it. And, you know, for better or for worse, no matter what side of the case you're on, you better connect the dots anywhere that there's a potential gap in the story And it reminds me of a case my dad had several years ago. It was a railroad crossing case where the arm that, you know, comes down and warns you that a train is coming, that didn't come down. There was no warning to our client. And so our client continued to cross the tracks, and he was hit by a train. And the case was focused... And at some point during the focus group, the air quote jurors came to the conclusion that because our client was driving some sort of sports vehicle, that that's probably a fair assumption that he didn't want to wait. So he would have just driven around the entire arm, the railroad crossing arm. There was no evidence of this. It didn't happen. The jury, air quote, jury, just created this narrative based on the assumption, based on the type of vehicle that our client was driving. And that is not anything that you could predict, especially having worked on a case for years. You know, we know our cases better than anyone before we're walking into the courthouse And if we're not thinking about how somebody could perceive our client's story or what happened to them before we explain it, we're just doing a huge disservice to our clients if we're not thinking about how a jury might perceive it. And, you know, we talked about the logistics of focus groups in part one, and we talked about how helpful they are. And now when we're talking about misconceptions and things we've learned from focus groups, I'm thinking, is it total blind trust? Is it blind <laughs> trust that we put or are they helpful? Of course, I know there's value in focus groups, but it's just funny when we think about these misconceptions or what can happen and how you can prepare, you know, the same opening statement and the facts that, you know, and you've gone over in your head for years and they just not believe that's how something could have happened.
1: I think the value in that, though, is it gets you thinking about aspects of your case that you have been sort of trained to stop thinking about. Because, Mary, when you were describing the facts, I'm starting to think about, well, when did we start to learn about how to analyze a case? Law school. Think about it. Think about your torts exam 1L year. Where you, Elizabeth's making a face, clearly she doesn't (laughs) want to think about it, but, you know, think about your torts exam 1L year where you are given a set of facts and then you have to write out your argument, whether it, you know, the plaintiff wins or the defendant wins or what are the different causes of action you could bring. Imagine on your torts exam with that scenario you just gave Mary of the facts of the case and then just writing in there. But you know, maybe he <laughs> he just <laughs> right. like went around the arm. Maybe, you know, just let, let me just make up additional facts for you, professor. You would fail that exam and the professor would say, what is wrong
3: with you? Right. Yeah, because right. the number one rule of law school is like, don't fight the hypothetical. Do- exactly. Right.
1: So we are trained to think only about the facts and not about random events that could happen completely outside of what is in reality, what is in evidence. Juries don't have that training. And it kind of goes back to this idea of juries really like to think that, well, this horrible thing would never happen to me. So what did they do? They found a way to blame the plaintiff. Right. Clearly, the plaintiff was at fault because this was a young man with a nice sports car. And we all know young men with nice sports car aren't responsible. So how do you get around that? And maybe that's an opportunity for you to say, well, you know, he was young and he did have a sports car and, you know, they go fast, but he's got a perfect driving record. No speeding tickets. Is it possible for you to try to introduce evidence to show that your client was a good driver? Maybe if this is a situation where the client survived, I don't know if this young man lived or not, but maybe that's something you try to bring out in a permissible way on direct examination? How do you try to get the facts out there so that you plant the seed in the jury's mind that they are then going to find in your favor later? Even if someone tries to throw out this random, crazy hypothetical, how do you make sure you've armed the smart jurors, the ones who are paying attention to the evidence, to then combat that? Yeah, Liz, that makes sense.
2: And when I was thinking about juror misconceptions, it's so funny because the last kind of a takeaway from focus groups that I've learned, I'm actually using myself as an example of this. And I bet all of you at one point or another have participated in some sort of being a judge or a juror for a mock trial, whether it's at, you know, local law school here or with high schools around the area. But I have served as both a judge and a juror several times for mock trials put on by law students. And I will tell you, the last time I served as a juror, it was for high school students. So it's in an evening, right? So it's two and a half hours, three hours. And I swear to you, after three hours of sitting there, I mean, intently watching these high schoolers put on their mock trial I could not tell you that I remembered what witnesses were for each of the sides in that couple hour period. All I could remember is that one of the witnesses I totally didn't trust at all. And it was completely based on, you know, the packet instructions. It's not that I didn't trust the high school student <laughs> sitting understand. Right. <on> the stand. <laughs> I didn't trust the character that was created by the mock trial, you know, coordinators in this specific packet, Right. That is the only thing I could remember is that I just didn't believe anything that that witness said, and that totally made me decide in favor of the other side. I fortunately had the opportunity to do that shortly before I had my last trial, and I just kept thinking to myself, my biggest takeaway being a air quote juror for that case is authenticity just trumps everything for me. When I think someone is being very authentic and genuine and honest, I am more likely, you know, me, Mary Simon, I am more likely to side with whoever I just feel like is being more honest and truthful and authentic. And I carried that with me in my last trial, which is just jurors kind of brings us back to the first point at the beginning of this podcast. You don't insult the jury. They're gonna know. They're going to know if what you're saying is truthful and you're being honest and sincere and authentic in what you're saying. That was my biggest takeaway, even for myself. So I'm definitely going to carry that forward in future cases. Not that I haven't before, but it really kind of hit me over the head when I served as a juror and then I was thinking I couldn't even name the witnesses.
0: It's kind of funny that you bring up mock trial because I actually serve as the coach of our local law school's mock trial team. And last week I was in Chicago for a competition and I had this sort of similar revelation. And one of the biggest lessons that I took away from it is that there's no one correct way to a case because we had three separate trials that we put on to get, you know, point accumulations and potentially move on to the finals. Each trial that we did, we had three or four judges who served as essentially the judges and the jurors. And they gave feedback after each round. And each time they provided feedback that was so... Well, first of all, they provided feedback of, I wish you would have done this or included this, and it's just information that's not in the problem. It's not in the packet. The students aren't allowed to make those inferences and say things that aren't in the packet. So one of them was like, I wish you would have impeached that expert about how much he was getting paid. And we're like, there's no information about that in the problem. We can't do that. But one of the biggest takeaways from these, I guess you could call them sort of like a focus group of these panels of judges was that something that really resonated with one judge or juror did not hit it all for another, something that one really liked. In a case, another one hated and was like, I would take that out in the future. And to my students afterwards, I'm like, don't put too much stock in that kind of thing. But it it just goes to show that people are going to resonate with different pieces of evidence differently, different strategies. I also think it's very beneficial to see that. Keep trying things because it's going to hit with some people.
2: I think my biggest takeaway from our discussions in these last couple episodes are really, do your absolute best to educate the jury on the most that you can with the facts you've got. Don't insult them and be your most authentic self to be relatable to the most people. I think beyond that, part of our jobs is to trust this process and trust in juries and trust how this system plays out and you know, at the end of the day, I think it is, it's going to be really, really helpful for, you know, the attorneys who are listening to this and the lawyers in our office to continue investing our time into these focus groups, really paying attention to the feedback that we get, and then propelling that information forward in our future trials. And with that, I want to just say thank you so much for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Feel free to reach out to us at comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. Thanks for listening.
1: Amy,
0: Liz, Erica, Mary,
1: Elizabeth, and Megan would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts to comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And check out other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. The Jury Is Out with John Simon focuses on lifelong learning to elevate your practice. Subscribe today!